Welcome to The Gap, where it's our mission to bridge the gap between javelin and baseball training styles. I'm Bret Hart, founder of Hitman Performance, head training conditioning coach at Grind Athlete Performance, and ex-collegiate baseball player turned powerlifter. And I'm Dan Labadia, javelin coach at Southern Connecticut State University and the man behind Jack Javelin. Hope you guys enjoy the show. So today we got my uh, my biggest hater on the on the podcast, <laughs> Ethan Shalloway. So uh, Ethan and I just got back from uh, L- the LSU camp last week. Um, it was great to spend some time with him in person and, and his training group and stuff like that. So welcome to the Gap. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you forgot to mention how we first uh, interacted. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say we should provide a little bit of context. Yeah. Like, how did you guys meet? How did you guys talk? Like, what was up with all that? I'll let Ethan take it away. <laughs> oh yeah, I've been waiting to tell the story on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> get, it over, get it over with now. Yeah, well, the first time we uh, saw each other was at Jab Fest. I saw him back there, and uh, I remember you commented on because someone commented and said they saw you in the back of my video throwing. I don't remember that, and you commented. Yeah, yeah. Um, almost deleted it, but now I'm just kidding. <laughs> what was the comment? Um, it was just something about somebody said like, "Who's that handsome guy in the background?" or something. I don't know. Yeah, and he's like a beast or something. <laughs> and, uh, but now he, uh, and that was right when you were starting your Jack Javelin cage, and it was. Um, at Jack Fest, I don't know what it was at, maybe 5,000 or something. Yeah. And then I was, I remember I was flying back um, in November for Thanksgiving, and you had posted something. And I was like, and I had seen some of your stuff, and I was like, I got I to gotta say something. Javelin, Javelin, I'm so passionate about the Javelin and all this stuff, and I love the Javelin community. And I was like, I, I, I need to say something. So I just, I kind of put out there, I was like, hey, I was like, this is not a very good demonstration for Javelin, uh, some, of the, some of the drills you guys are doing. Um, just be careful. And you responded um, like you do. You're like, what's wrong? What is it? Who, you know, tell me. And I was like, all right, t- DM me, like, let's call. And then, um, you know, you followed through. We had a conversation. It was about an hour. It was really solid. You listened well. You're not, you know, you're not as uh, combative in person as you are on Instagram, maybe. Um, you're a dick great. on Instagram. <laughs> he's, a, he's a dick on Instagram. Right, right, which I don't mind. I don't mind. But, you know, at some points, you know, you got to know that uh, maybe unnecessary. <laughs> so uh, we talked a little bit and uh, followed up and had, like, a few more conversations, which is good. And I told him, it's like, hey, you know, you know, your PR is 60 and you're coaching somebody and you're, and you're doing a lot of stuff. I was like, you know, we need to get you more involved in the community and like kind of just outside of your, the Northeast and the, the Connecticut area. Like there's some, there's some other stuff that you want to, cause it's a very international sport and a lot of people have like a lot of experiences and, you know, it's just so valuable. Like we were just talking about off camera, I believe. So you came to LSU and we got to spend some time, spend some time with our group and a bunch of other coaches from around, you know, around the country, but, um, you know, come from the same line of coaching and thoughts and you did really well. I, mean, I thought I didn't get to work with you much, but it was kind of intentional. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the one to talk to you because I talked to you like a little bit. I mean, I talked to you more than everybody else. So I was like, you, you know, you got to hear from them first, and then we can kind of debrief. So I hope that was a positive experience. And yeah, but it was funny. It's funny how it all started. Um, so I'm, I'm your biggest. I'm just your hardest coach. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, just holding hold me accountable in the areas that I don't always want to be accountable. And so it's right. good. But um, Ethan, so talk a little bit about your. Um, your experience like getting brought up with javelin like who was your biggest influence like getting involved in it for the first time so for the first time i mean if we want to go way back when i was in high school i played basketball that was my primary um, first love as i always say and then for track it was high jump i was a big high jumper i jumped like six four in competition you know, like six five in practice but no one cares <laughs> and uh and so i did that and my, my one friend who was actually in my band he was a bassist and he was like hey it's like how cool would it be to be proficient use the word proficient at throwing a spear and I was like, yeah, that would be pretty. That would be pretty cool. So we started throwing a little bit, and I played baseball um, and just threw rocks as a kid. So I had a good natural throwing motion, and picked it up. My so- end of my sophomore year, through like 139. No, no, I'm sorry. My first meet was like 130, and I finished that year at 159, like eight. And 160 was making districts. So I was right before, but I was kind of happy because I had a basketball tournament at the same weekend as districts, so no big deal. Um, so that was like the first time I started doing it, and um, I went to a clinic with Barry and Tom and Jeff Korski. Um, End of my junior year, I think was the first one. And then I went to like two, maybe my senior year. Um, so that was the first kind of introduction to higher level coaching. And, and as a high schooler, you know, most people don't have great coaches at their high school. So going to a clinic like that, we put one on at LSU, Barry, there's, there's some that goes on a PA. There's kind of, they, they happen all over the place. And, um, but you get such a rush of information that you don't really expect as a high schooler. And it really, and, you know, I'm sure that you probably experienced that this past weekend um, as well, Dan. Like, there's just so much information. There's so many different throwers from across the country or across the state. So um, it's nice because it kind of widens what you what you think javelin can be. Mm. Um, so then I went to Pittsburgh. I threw 208 my senior year. It's like 63 meters, I think. Um, and it was good. It was the farthest in Pennsylvania. Senior year in high like school? Four. Huh? Senior year in high school, you threw 208? Senior year of high school, yeah. 
Yeah, senior year of high school, it, it was 63 meters, I think. So it was number one in the state. I didn't win state, so it was a terrible, terrible crosswind. Probably the worst wind I've ever thrown. I feel like 190 and got fifth. I was pissed because obviously I wanted to be a champ, but I'm not. And um, yeah, I went to Pittsburgh for two years, and I would say like there, that's where I my first coach was, his name was Chip Rundage. And um, he was, you know, typical throws coach for college. He was a rotational guy. I think he threw at Simpson College. He coached at Troy for a little bit. He was a rotational guy. But we were big. Like, we did hand cleans, heavy, trained early in the morning, and we were just really aggressive. It was like we go to a meet. It was like dig their graves, kick them in. Like, that's all we wanted to do is be, like, really aggressive. So, and I so that's where I learned. I mean, I had a really good work ethic, work ethic in high school, but in college, I took it to another level. I was just, like, really motivated, as most college, most high school seniors and college freshmen, once you get that bug, it's really easy to push your body's you know, young. And um, so I got like, so I, I credit him to a lot of like my discipline and my, I mean, he would be very tough on us for different things. And it was just like, you know, no one, our head coach, no one cares about this more than you do. No, no one cares as much as I do. Like you need to take this on your own. So I, I developed a love for it there. And um, through that time, I also went to a clinic and kept talking with Tom and had a clinic with Kim O'Kinnanen, who's a 1990 world champion. So I saw some of the higher level guys, as well as some other higher level college guys that were there, like coaching, um, similar to what we had this weekend. Yeah, I, I just became really determined um, to be to be the best that I could, and I finished my sophomore year at 69 meters. I opened up at like 68 and through 69, like the second I was in really good shape, um, just physically. And my coach left, my throws coach left, and there wasn't much support from the uh, head coach. So then I transferred, and I went to because I kind of outgrew the ACC, at least outgrew Pittsburgh in what they had to offer in the facilities. They didn't have an outdoor track. We trained indoors and whatnot. So I kind of outgrew that, and I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to make sure that I had what I needed to be successful. So I went to the SEC, and although it was great, I didn't necessarily get better because I didn't have a PR in that time there. Um, I didn't throw over 70, which, like, killed me. But because it was just, it was just disappointment after disappointment because I trained really well, but I didn't quite throw farther. So, but it was really important because I got a whole new set of friends, a whole new set of training partners, different coaching styles, totally different. It was much more feel and like rhythmic and I, I learned a lot but it, i had to like kind of get back to my roots and learn how to be aggressive with like what i learned so so when i graduated it was 2018 well and there's also okay so when I, in 2015 was when i was leaving and i actually i remember talking to tom puxas and in uh at the jazz fest and i was like I'm, I'm transferring i was like i don't know where i'm going i was like i really want to be the best like what do i need to do to be really good he's like honestly he's like you need to go to finland to go over there train with them so i got to talk to petri the coach and like let's get you over there and and just see what it is so I was like, all right, I'm sold. I was like, talk to my coach, and, I, um, and he was going to give me a, like a scholarship for. So I, it was before the transport per, portal. So I was denied eligibility for that next year. I had to sit out, even though because it was in the East region. Even though I wouldn't like be competitive with Pittsburgh until the regional qualifying, which was the top 48, they denied it. I appealed it. We came up, and the head coach and the people at Pittsburgh were like, no. So I decided to um, take the fall semester off. So I took like a gap and I was a mid-year transfer in January. And so during October, I worked at the a Mason for like five weeks, six weeks, like all September. And then I went to Finland for all of October and a little bit of November. So I was there for like five weeks by myself um, training with like, you know, three times a day, two times a day. And just like, just pushing. And like Taro Pikamaki was there. He threw a little bit um, at the end. They started up in like November, like Julius Diego and Ehab were there and they just had got um, second and third at the world championships. So I was surrounded by a ton of these like really high level athletes. And I was all by myself, one of the only, you know, US English speaking people there. So talk about a lot of self-discovery and, and learning. I was just kind of in this dorm room that didn't, you know, didn't have anything except for a bed and um, some Wi-Fi. And I just kind of, I just kind of hunkered down for like five weeks and fell in love with the process like all over again. But it's funny, you learn so much and then I went to Kentucky and it was, and we tried to implement it, but you know, you can learn so much, but it takes a while to set in. So, um, I think it was, it was great. And I, like, I learned a ton that I use, that I used down the road. But, um, like I said, it didn't show up for four years because I got to Kentucky in 2016 and, and I didn't PR until, um, I graduated in that, that first year out of college when I threw, um, 74 meters. Yeah. Graduated 2018 and I was like, through 69, I was like, I need way more. So 69 meters for people out there is, you know, that's going to make the national meet some years. Last year, it took 70. If you throw it on the day, um, it's right on the verge of being, like right on the edge of being um, like really competitive in the NCAA. Of course, people throw upper 70s, but, you know, if you throw 73, you should get some points at the NCAA. And um, I knew that my potential was there, so I, like, I got to keep going. I was like, there's no way that I'm going to finish my career not throwing 70 meters. I was like, there's just no way. And that was kind of like the only goal of like continuing training. I mean, of course, I had lofty goals, but like, I was like, I owe it to myself to throw 70 
because that is like I just know that I can do that. So it was a tough year. I had like uh, I had to get an MRI on my shoulder. I barely threw in the fall because like my shoulder was kind of like messed up, and I, it was a lot of uncertainty because I had no health insurance. I had to do it when I was home. Yada yada. And um, but I trained well. I stuck to it. A lot of solo stuff because I had a new coaching staff, so I wasn't like necessarily welcome on the team like I would have expected. And I just kind of hunkered down, went down, trained with Tom for like two weeks separately, once in like the middle of the year around NCAA championships indoor, and then once like right before Jab Fest. And so I opened up the season like doing some crossovers and I threw 70 meters, 71, and it was like probably one of the best throws. I mean, it was the biggest, a a huge relief um, and a huge like monkey off my back. And then that year I felt really good. I threw 74 in front of my family at Jab Fest. That was great. Then I went to the U.S. championships for the first time. And uh, I, I was like number 10, so I was the first one out of uh, this, the second flight. And I was like, I, I felt so good. I was ready for 76, 77 meters, and I was feeling really good at warm-ups and kind of pushed off my right too far, too fast or too hard, and I pulled my groin um, in warm-ups like pretty, pretty significantly. And that's, I've had that problem a lot. And it's good that you're working with Jordan to get his foot down because I had a lot of similar problems where my foot would be up, and I would glide out. And, you can, and if you don't turn your foot in properly and you do some stuff, you can put a lot of pressure on your groin. So I, would, I had that problem come up quite a bit and I had to fix it. Um, so that happened. And obviously I tried to fight through, I put a bunch of atomic bomb on my groin and you know how that goes. It just seeps everywhere and it's not very comfortable. So I was all over the place and, and managed like 67 meters, I think 67 high and finished like 12th, sorry, 11th or 12th. So I was pissed, but it was a really good year altogether. I only threw like three or four times. So I took advantage of those meets. And then the following year in 2019, I was like figuring out what to do. And I talked to Tom and he said that Maggie, alone was looking for a coach and I secretly like I always say there's like four things to be really successful you need to have the internal drive which a lot of people have you need to have good training facilities which a lot of people have these days it's always good to have training partners that have the same goals that have the same level I had that at Kentucky I had somebody and then you need a coach that can get you to where you want to go that was the one thing that I I feel like I never had a full-time coach that had the experience of 85 meters right that's my that was my goal you know or like that's I want to be the best I could be so there's not a lot of college coaches that know what it takes to throw past 80. I mean, a lot of coaches can get you to 75 to 77, but then what do you do? Because you probably have a really talented athlete on your hands physically, a lot of drive, a lot of, you have to be really focused and, and have, it's, you have to be really diligent to get to the next level. Um, so I was doing everything in my power to get, I was like, do I need to move to Finland? Do I need to train there? Do I need to move to, and I was like, how do I move to Alabama? And then this the USA Jab Project kind of idea popped in. So I moved there. I was there for, um, you know, a little bit and then COVID happened. So we lost that first year, trained really hard, obviously going up, trained like really hard, like a lot of, lot of technical reps and ball reps. And that's why I was really forging a lot of technical, uh, fixing technical habits and forging my technique now. It's like that year and a half that happened in COVID. Um, and so that following year, um, I threw 77 meters at the Tucson Elite Meet. And that was, you know, the 70 meters meant a lot, but that 77 was like, man, I was at the, at the top echelon of what people throw in college and it felt really good. I was like, all right, I've arrived. I'm finally, I'm in the professional realm. Like now it's very, you're very respected with a 77 meter, almost inter, like internationally. And uh, so I was feeling good. Everything was going well. And then that following year, I threw 80 meters as well. And that was like another step where I was just like, all right, even even better, like even more respect. Like this is, this is huge. So my PR is 80.08. My second best throw is 79.87. So, yeah, so that's, um, I mean, then currently, you know, I guess, and then last year I threw 78.20. Um, I had to go back, get my shoulder re-looked at at the end of the year, ended up getting a shoulder scope in November. So I'm on the repair from, um, honestly, like the last five years of kind of wear and tear. It's really just uh, uh, your case of thrower shoulder. Like the doc said, like any MLB major leaguer uh, Hall of Famer is going to have this. It's just like, it, you know, your, your labrum tears a little bit so you can get some more rotation and your rotator cuff just wears over time. So, um, but it's doing really good. I'm feeling good and um, I'm happy where I'm at for sure. Nice. <clears throat> nice. Hopefully, hopefully you're doing a little bit more than like two, two pound dumbbell ER rotations. No, that's back. it. Or it's band. <laughs> that's band. It. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> in, need this, I'm in the, the baseball world and it's just like, it's, it's dope talking to like you guys and like the javelin world just to see the, the differences. And it's pretty... Yeah it's pretty drastic comparative to the old school style of baseball where they just do like the banded ERs at like not even two pounds or they do the um, like arm circles and they're all right, let's go throw. And they wonder why their arm hurts when they try to throw like 80 and not even let alone 90 miles an hour, which is like the league minimum now. So you're saying the older guys, they would just, it would be really basic like to warm up or like rehab after a warm, So like old school baseball coaches don't know nearly as much as like, well, like I think newer school, like new gen coaches know now. So like, I was always joking with Dan where he posted a video. I think it was Nevin doing like 
40 pound um, shoulder circles, like heavy shoulder circles. And I was like, I worked at a baseball facility and those guys would lose their mind if they saw that. Like there was just always the classic like J-band routine to warm up, throw a couple of plyo balls at like 50% and then get on the mound. And that's just a lot of the baseball world. And that's why like I like being with Dan in this podcast, like talking about like the javelin side of things because you guys throw a much heavier implement and you have to prepare your bodies much more aggressively. And I just, yeah. I wish like more baseball players took that into account. Yeah, when I was in Finland that first time, I remember we had, you know, med balls, like a lot of med ball workout, and we did a lot of like ball throws before we threw javelins. And I don't remember how it came up or if I said like, oh, we're throwing javelin after this, like, you know, this is just the warm up. And he said, the warm up is a part of the workout. Like all these reps that you're doing now is just as important as the javelin stuff. And we're talking like the fall. So when people are warming up and throwing balls, like, you know, that's your, that is part of your workout. And you, you, you count those reps. I mean, I'm counting all my ball throws and med ball throws because I mean, they're reps and you're going to be doing them at higher intensity and that's where you create the power. That's where you develop your power and strength. So yeah, I think like, you know, just framing like warm up is its own thing, but really it's, it's all a part of that workout. Same with cool down. Like that is, that is a part of your workout and that's the mindset you have to, you know, I think get the best out of the throws with javelin. So you'll be a little tired when you get to it, but that's fine because um, if it's the fall, you're developing power and stability that will, you know, that's the base that'll take you to when you're moving at full speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Just a question about like, what would you say for a lot of like the younger listeners out there, like younger throwers, whether it be javelin throwers or baseball throwers or pitchers in general, like what would be a best piece of advice that you would give them starting off? Yeah, I would say two things. One is, you know, never underestimate what you can do with a long period of time. Um, especially javelin. There's a lot of times where I see people in the throwing and I'm like, you need to relax. You know, you need to be more confident. And those are two things that you can't fake. You try to, you can fake confidence and it works sometimes, but in reality, in order to be truly confident going into a meet, like if I, I've had a lot of times where like, all right, like I've gone in with a brave face, like super confident, I'm gonna throw 70 meters, you know, but like deep down, like I knew that it was a stretch type of thing. So when you put in the work and you do all the, all the prerequisites, like that's when you gain real confidence and it takes a long time. Same with relaxation. You know, if you want to be comfortable with the javelin, it's very difficult. I don't know if you guys play instruments, but the first time you get behind a drum kit and you start playing, you learn the beats. It is what it is. You play them and it doesn't, usually it sounds disjointed. Then you get like a five-year guy and you should hear the rhythm. Then you get like a 10-year, 20-year guy that's been playing his whole life and he has like just absolute control over the set. And that's how javelin is. Like you can be in the event for two years and you feel really good, but you know, once you get to like, you know, I'm at year 10 or something, like the more reps, the more time with the javelin is, you know, irreplaceable. And so I would say like, you know, this stuff takes a long, a long time and to develop that real relaxation and real confidence in your abilities, it takes time. And if you want to get to the end of the road, you know, 90 meters, 70 meters as a woman, like, or farther, you know, it takes a long time and it's not going to be something overnight and you're going to, you're going to plateau at times and you get to re- redo your technique. And that was the other point is, you know, you need to know where your end goal is and kind of start forming the technique for that early. Um, you know, and that's kind of one of the things that can be frustrating with coaches and you get that a lot in the NCAA is they have a four year window and they want to get the best out of them. So the easiest return on investment is going to be the weight room. It's going to be power and you can really do that stuff and improve, but there's a 75 meter limit to that or an 80 meter limit. I mean, Tom said it in one of the videos he posted yesterday, like the best arm in the world, you know, can throw 80 meters. If you want their 90, you have to get your lower half involved. You have to get your body. So being able to implement that sooner than later is going to help you accelerate the second half of development, you know, into that, into the elite stage. That's why you get people that are from Europe that are doing it from a young age with proper technique that throw really far with the 700 grams and kind of get to the upper seventies like faster because they may not have the strength of like the older kind of generation, but there's, they still know how to throw the javelin in a much more efficient way. Um, so yeah, those are the, the main things that, and so whenever I, whenever we coach, like I'm always thinking like long-term, this is like the kid, like once he can run and move really, really well, these positions will hold up. And, um, and I've talked about Dan, like, you know, you talk close to Kevin Foster and some of the, sometimes I think that, you know, there's a lot of like kind of standing power and standing, finding separation and standing movements that, um, you know, doesn't translate in my mind, doesn't translate a ton to when you have to move really fast and be stable. And I've talked to him a bunch about it and, and you know, it's nothing new, but I just try like, just cause he focuses for high school and college to get scholarships and to kind of move. And, um, I just, you know, make sure everybody is looking as far as they want to go and kind of like, that's where you kind of work from. Yeah. You said Kishore Wolcott was the person that taught you that he basically never takes standing throws, right? Yeah. He was here, um, two years ago. He came and trained for at least two weeks. It was probably longer. It was probably like a month because he competed with us twice. And um, yeah, we were doing some warm up, and I remember I was throwing, and he was like, "What are you? You know, why are you just standing?" 
And I was like, well, I'm just warming up. I'm just getting going. He's like, wasn't that what the ball throws were for? Like, your arm is warm. I was like, okay. And he's like, javelin is very dynamic. He's like, you want to practice it dynamic, even if it's, you know, you're not throwing far. Like, you need to be moving. You need to feel the transfer. All that stuff, like, works towards your technique in the end. And um, that's a hard thing to always remember because you're doing something that's like, this is just for power. Like, you know, the technical analysis doesn't need to be there. But you can't forget about it completely. So when he told me that, I was like, okay. And then I watch, you know, I watch them, and you know, you see a lot of professionals like they get on the runway and they're just kind of slinging the javelin already. It's like because they've done their warm up outside and they've done a lot of stuff. So when they get there, like I said, it's very dynamic, and that kind of stuck with me. I was like, yep. I was like, and I'm, I'm not the most powerful athlete out here either. So I mean, you know, I am. I have a decent arm. I can throw you know 60 meters from a stand or you know walking. Like I was really good at that early on because that's what we trained and that's what I did. So I got really good at that. But then once I tried to transition speed, I couldn't hold a block and I couldn't transfer it. So what's the point? You know, my three step was almost 67 meters and then my full approach was 69 and a half or something like that. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's no good. That's no, that's no fun either. Cause then you're just like, why, you know, why, why am I only getting two and a half meters or something like that? Yeah. So that was a big thing I had to break because they said we worked on and kind of going back to what I said about the technique. So when you train, like, and you have really powerful athletes, like you get, you get really comfortable in whatever position you train. So I was training, and I was pushing off my right leg, and I was I was pulling my left arm like this. I was keeping my shoulder pretty close, which helped me because that's like the most important thing. Like the arm, if it moves out of the way, but your shoulder's still close, it's when your shoulder drops that you start like turning your other side a little early. And um, I got really good at throwing in this position that wasn't that ideal, but like I was powerful in it, so I created a lot of power from those from that position. And then once I had to fix it to kind of be a little bit more efficient, you know, you have to work out of it. So there's a ton of people. It's like, yeah, this isn't that clean. Um, it's not the ideal technique, but they're really used to it. So that's why it looks smooth. That's why it's really powerful. It's because it's what they do. But then you, when you try to change it, it gets really difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's always harder to change things at like higher intensity or, you know, when you're like, for example, last week was a good example of that where I threw off the runway three, three days in a row, but I was also learning a lot of new things that I was trying to do within my throat. It was obviously like a lot harder to implement um, off the runway than it would be like, you know, so it's like, Learning that, breaking it down, you know, starting slow and building back up is definitely a lot easier to build that muscle memory. Um, so I know one thing that you, you know, you've kind of talked to me about for um, like since we started, um, you know, kind of conversing back and forth about Jeff technique is that you've mentioned a couple times that you learned to throw 80 while you were learning to throw 70. So do you want to like elaborate on that or, you know, or you could reframe it if, if you meant it in a different way? Right. So again, I threw 69 meters in 2014. And I basically had that PR until 2019. So that's five years. I was stuck at 69 meters. It's a long time, guys. You know, what I mean? like that's that's a long time to not feel like you're getting better. And um, but I was working. I was I was trying to figure stuff out. I was doing some different stuff, and like I was kind of learning the technique. And I was going through like these battles all the time, all the time. Battles like doing bad at meets and trying to figure out how to keep training and being being positive. And, and when it's not easy to be positive, um, and when I say that, I think that. I made a few changes and obviously you're not going to, like I said, you're not going to, you know, hit these positions and be super comfortable the first time you do it. So what I was doing is I developed a technique that was really would hold up at faster speeds, you know, and more power. And then as I did it more, I, I started gaining more speed and felt more comfortable with it. And the power positions, like I were able to be a little bit stronger each year. And I don't think that it was that much different. Like my, um, some of the stuff I was doing, I was doing like, you know, low seventies, um, but I was just at a much higher intensity and it just held up really well. And like everything got cleaner as I did it over the years. So, um, yeah, but like when you're trying to figure something out and trying to get over the hump, you really have to like learn and, and move around and, and, and take everything in. So I was just trying to take so much in and, um, and take the coaching as it came. And I just felt like the, the progression was easier because I, yeah, I did the work a little bit earlier and I don't know, it didn't, it, it just seemed, it just makes sense in my head. I was like, I learned how to throw 80 by figuring by, by that five period span. Like that's when I learned the discipline. I made the choice to like continue going. And I had like a really a big conviction to get to the next level, especially once I broke 71, like that was the first meet. I threw 71. I was like, all right. I was like, if I can do that, then I can throw 80, then I can throw 85. So what, uh, do you, would you say that you ever had paralysis analysis by along that period? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Paralysis by analysis, um, meet anxiety. Cause a lot of like trying to analyze like meat stuff and breaking things down. Um, a lot of coaches, I think that, you know, I mean, Raymond and I mean, Tom, Tom's usually pretty good at that, um, at this. And when we were in Finland, like, you know, I throw and I look back and I was like, what do you see? How do you look? And he'd be like, thumbs up. 
And it was very, it, all of a sudden it became, the coaching became much different. It became a lot less talking. So I, although like watching film and practice and talking about everything is good for setting the fundamentals, but like the, it is a lot. It's so much when you really, when you're really trying to be the best and like get to the next level, like all of those conversations definitely weigh on you. And just like we talked about a little bit um, for dinner, like the conscious competence, unconscious incompetence and like what you know to do and free throw shooting is the best. Like once you make a technique and you need to change and you need to think about it, it makes it really hard to execute what you're doing. And um, so when you're making all these technical changes, you have to get through to the other side. And um, yeah, there was just like, there was so much talk going on. And when you're going to a bunch of different places, it can get really crowded. So yeah, I would, there's definitely a lot of that. And that's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to avoid um, because most coaches, you know, when they, when you find like, when you are unsure of stuff, you, you try to talk your way into something that makes sense. And then you talk too much. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. You kind of like over 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 analyze it or try to over explain it to the point where it like doesn't make sense anymore um, yeah and it happens it happens a lot and um i, I think that a simpler approach is i mean there are time for that so there are time for heady, heady conversations where you get really deep into like what you know what really is going on but i mean let's not over analyze like we want to come in with speed we want to block we want to transfer that speed and we want to hit the shit out of the javelin like we just want to snap it so like let's and once i once i put the switch back to so when i was at kentucky i was thinking so much and then i was like you know what i was like i'm doing this for myself i was like i'm just gonna rip it and like my technique that I've been working on kind of held up and I kind of released, you know, some of the stuff that I was like trying to do. And all of a sudden I was getting, I was like, the javelins were clean cause I've always had like a pretty clean throw. Mm. And all of a sudden I was getting more power behind it. And then, so these last five years, like I found my aggression of how to just like really throw the spear and, um, and it's just, and I trust it. Like I don't, in practice, I don't throw very, you know, hard. It's all about cleanliness and stuff. And then I, cause I know that I, I found my aggression that when it's time, you know, I can count on it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about like what you were talking about in terms of how you might get worse before you get better. Like when, yeah, so you, I, when you make a technical change. Yeah, I had a, um, a sports psychology teacher in uh, at Pittsburgh, and it was it was he was really interesting. We didn't have we didn't have any homework. We didn't have anything. The only thing that you didn't have to come to class. The only thing that matters was the test. And um and he and it was all about psychology. So he did weird stuff like this all the time. And he was like he's like yeah I'm a big donor. He's like don't if you're if you're on the athletic team don't tell me you can't make a test. Like the test is when it is. Like you have like I remember one time I had to. I took a flight like the next day because I couldn't remake the test. He's like, the test only happens in class. And he was very big on that. And he like, he was a millionaire, but dressed with like baggy jeans, baggy shorts or whatever. Like he was just like, he donated to the school, but he was just a dude who he's like, I've worked with pitchers. And he's like, if you want to get behind the mound. So basically, so you talk about this, if you think about a square, you have your conscious and unconscious. So things you think about things you don't, and then your competence and incompetence, things you can do, things you can't do. So the easiest examples are like, if you're conscious that you can do something, like opening a door. You don't think about opening a door. You just walk up, open it, right? I don't need to think about that. Then you have the things that you like are aware that you can't do. Like, Dan, you probably can't dunk basketball, am I right? I can dunk. Is that <laughs> a joke? <laughs> <laughs> so, Told like, you I, you, take, like, you, when you take somebody, it's like, hey, dunk this basketball. It's like, I can't. I know I can't do it. So it's a conscious incompetence, something you know you can't do. Um, and then you have your um, unconscious incompetence, the stuff that you don't know that you can't do. Um, but then where all of the sports psychology lies is the conscious competence, or I'm sorry, the unconscious competence. That's where, all right, I messed this up. The unconscious competence is opening the door, but then the conscious where you're thinking about it and you have to do it, that's that's the development. So a good example is like free throw percentage. You're 88% of free throw and you want to get to 92. So what you need to do is your hands out here, you need to bring it in. The first, you know, you're going to start doing that and you have to think about it and say like the first 200 shots are going to be like a lot of thinking and your percentage is going to go down to 82%. And you get really upset because you went down because you made a technical change and you went down. But once you figure it out and you can go from being like having to think about it to not having to think about it, that's where you go back up. So it's like a, it dips and then you get to go back. Um, you get to go back up higher in your um, you know, percentages. So same thing with Javelin. Like when you work on things with Jordan that we talked about over the weekend, like it's going to be difficult and he's not going to, because I had a lot of the same problems. I couldn't get my left foot down. Once you start getting your left foot down faster, the jab, it all happens a lot sooner and you can't, you don't produce as much power because it kind of catches you off guard and it happens a lot faster. So you're not getting as much power as you used to on the jab and it's really easy to want to go back to the old ways. But if you stick with it, you work on those techniques and then you fix it, then all of a sudden it's second nature and you know, if, you're, if his ceiling is 77 with this technique right now, you change the technical analysis with the ceiling is now 81 and then you can get to it. So I've always like anytime you're making a change, you got to give yourself. You got to know that it's gonna it's gonna suck. It's gonna get down, but you got, and it's gonna go down in in a success rate. And then you just stick with it, and then you know you'll come out of the weeds, and you'll have a little bit better chance of being at a higher 
um, yeah, high position. Yeah. Do you know who Les Bellman is? I don't think so. So he's a, he's just a sprint coach for um, a lot of NFL guys. So he would reference like hills and valleys. So all the guys that he gets are like extremely high level athletes that are preparing for the NFL combine. But a lot of them don't know how to sprint in a straight line for the 40 because they've never mm-hmm. really done it. Or they like a tenth of a second is probably a draft, like a, a round in the draft or at least a couple picks. So he always talks about like you're going to be in the valley for like a good eight weeks or you're going to get slower before you get faster. So I like that analogy. It's like you're always starting on your hill, but you got to get to a higher one. That's how, how, depending on how high that next hill is, that's how big the valley is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's extremely true in, I don't know, everything. Like techniques, and once you get once you kind of get set in your own way, um, you got to decide if it's worth kind of doing something different to get to the next level, and you got to be real with yourself and be like, although this worked to this point, I don't want to end here. I want to end somewhere else. So what do I need to do? What do I need to change? Yeah, I really liked your um, like your long term approach to it because we just have a ton of high school pitchers that like want to throw ninety or like want to get like that D one scholarship, but they always just like rush the process. Like my velo is not there, and like yeah, it's December, like you don't have to throw until mid March, early April, and then they're like freaked out and stressed out about it. So I like that analogy too. But what I like telling them is trying to find something outside of baseball to like not focus on, and like try to find a passion that like they kind of will just alleviate towards so it's not as stressful and i know you kind of have that too with your uh with the grunge band account yeah grunge bible grunge bible how did that start talk to us talk to us about that a little bit like what what made you get into that and start up that yeah grunge bible started in uh, my sophomore year i have a teammate his name is chris salona he was a freshman and there was like a four freshman guys in our senior my freshman year was just me and one other male thrower um so we were a small group and that year we um we spent a lot of time together obviously at meets in the toil as we called it and we would listen to music and we were we loved like old classic rock like neil young and the band and all this stuff and we were listening to a little bit of pearl jam and, and different uh, grunge music and there's a lot of um say exponential like lyrics and all that stuff and very kind of like potential we're talking about potential we're talking about you know breaking out and when we were transferring like we were leaving and it's a big decision to change schools for a second time. Like we moved, we all moved away. Um, I was in state, but the other guys were out of state. Everybody moved far distance to Pittsburgh and then we were going to move again to start over. And we were not being, you know, we were being denied of our like competition. And so it was like a big change for us through all this. And I'm a music guy. I played music in high school and stuff and music speaks to me in a lot of ways. So when we were listening to this, this music late night and, and singing along and, and just like having camaraderie over it, um, we just fell in love with the music. And so when we got to, our respected schools. He went to Iowa State to throw, and I went to Kentucky. We stayed in close contact, and it was and it was actually a lot of time when I was in Finland. I talked to him because um, we were on I mean different time zones, and I just was all by myself. So I would talk to him, and he was in Iowa, so he was all by himself there in a new school. So we became really close during that time, and we like loved the music. And we saw these YouTube comments where people were like, "Be like Eddie, better save my life." He, you know, he's an angel. His voice of an angel, and they were talking this hyperbole, and we thought it was you know, kind of hilarious. And so we would like participate a little bit in the YouTube comments and post and, like and just egg people on. And we're like, we need to, I was like, we need to post this somewhere and like kind of start our own. So we just started posting. We just like we got really. I was just like, let's just make an Instagram page. So we made that in like um, 2016, and we started posting to it and got a little bit of traction because of you know the internet how, how it works and people found it and started commenting stuff like that because we would say the same thing and um, and it just started growing and then we just got consistent with it. Uh, my partner Chris is. You know, he has incredible endurance for social media, so posting for him is no problem. And uh, he would just, he posted a lot that summer. And all of a sudden we were at like 16,000 and we're like, oh, this is really cool. And we just kept posting and just went to like 50. And then we're like, you know, and like I said, we just would send back lyrics to each other and just kind of grow uh, or just kind of like be in the music all the time and finding new stuff. It's a very, you know, the grunge scene is Seattle in the 90s. A lot of people playing in each other's bands. It's very connected and has a lot of stories to it. So I think it's a cool, like it's a cool music scene, right? And like historic, historic significance so um and it's very nostalgic nowadays too so people call it on and um it just kind of kept growing and growing and then we took it seriously in like 2017 when it was like 50k and we grew in that year we grew to like maybe like 120 or something we had a huge increase and we just kept it growing it and growing it and it just became a part of our life and i think we're like 610,000 followers now we've got podcasts of like two years and it's just just kind of happened That's consistency never never yeah. the goal of like hey we're gonna we're gonna grow this to a million that was never our goal we just it's always small things and we just did it because we loved it. And, um, and we accredit, I mean, same thing with Javelin. I, my passion for it is not developed because I wanted to, I mean, it, it developed because I wanted, I wanted to be the best obviously, but my real passion developed because I was in the trenches for so many years 
And that's how the grunge was. Like we were in the trenches posting, not because we wanted to get big, but because we loved it. And so we've developed this voice. And I feel like I have the same kind of voice and story in the javelin. Like it comes from a, a lot of passion, a lot of you know, time put in over the years. And that is authentic, you know, and that's what resonates with people. And so when I, when I coach, when I work with people, I hope they hear that. And um, same with the same thing with the page. Like we haven't, we definitely have not monetized it. Like we should have, but we're okay with that because it'll come. We're not, we're not in any hurry. Like when it's, when it happens, it happens. Um, but we just want to make sure that like when we post stuff that it's, it's people know that it's because it's real type of thing. Mm. And similar to like when we post on the, the jab project, not to attack the way that you post Dan, because it's obviously very different. Um, but like, I just wanted the, when I started the, the USA jab project page, it was just like, this is a real look into our training and follow along. And it's awesome because now I look back, you know, two, three years, four years, and I see a lot of videos of me training when I was not as good. And I'm like, wow. You know, it's a time cap, so you kind of go back, yeah. and it's, it's pretty raw, you know, and it just, it is what it is, and I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think that is really cool about the long-form content, especially, like, I think that the Instagram, like, yeah, you can scroll back and, and look at some of the, the past posts that you that you have and stuff, but I think that the, the long-form content, like the podcast and the YouTube and stuff is, you know, I only started that, you know, we started this podcast in August, started the YouTube channel in November, uh, but just even looking at, like, you know, like my Zelezny crossover video that, you know, we talked about and discussed and whatnot, like that's a more long depth uh, look at like what my coaching philosophy was at 24 and, you know, kind of like looking back at those and and seeing like how I progress as a coach and kind of just like where we're at, I think is going to be, be really cool. Um, You know, coaching Jordan and and going into the future of just like seeing like how, how the coaching style and how the brand has evolved, you know, because like obviously I've always talked about how, you know, I try to put educational stuff out there um, in the long form content with the podcast and the YouTube, but then more of like the entertainment type stuff as well. Like with the, um, you know, showing a little bit of our personalities and stuff on the Instagram and, and even on the YouTube a little bit too. But I think that that's like a really cool thing as well. Just being able to like, look back at, like you said, like as a time capsule and kind of seeing the, the evolution of, you know, yourself as an athlete and myself as an athlete, but also like just the, the coaching and the brand as well. Um, but what do you, what is like your, your training style in terms of like lifting and uh, mobility? Like I know you said you like the gymnastics room a lot and then this is kind of like a two part question, but would you, I don't know how much you know about baseball training and, and, and where baseball players are at, but like, you know, because this is a gap and that's kind of like what me and Brett are all about is like kind of bridging the gap and, and making baseball players a little bit more tenacious, you know, so just kind of briefly overview your training style, what you like to do. And if there's anything that you recommend that baseball players do as well, we'd love to hear some insight on that as a as an elite level javelin thrower. So, obviously, my training has evolved over the years. Um, different times, I focused on different things for a while. You know, it's like all about power development. I did that for a few years, and that's all about kind of rhythm. And I kind of switched and it was kind of body awareness. And like I said, the gymnastics room is great for that body awareness, stability, flexibility. Um, so now, where I'm at in my career with I feel really comfortable with a javelin in my hand and how I throw, like my technique. I'm, I'm a technical, I would say I'm a technical thrower with a good core and good flexibility, right? And like a decent upper body, like power um, versus like really explosive, um, really fast. I'm not like, I mean, I'm, I've definitely increased my speed in the past few years. Um, so knowing that I'm really confident with the javelin in my hand. So good example, this year I had that thick surgery and I'm not worried about me not throwing a javelin um, until you know, I'm throwing the 600 gram now, but I'm throwing the 800 until next month. I know that it'll come back in six weeks once I start throwing with it, like the connection. So I'm really focused on just being really fit, um, you know, running, jumping, um, and, you know, gymnastics. Like that's always been my, like, that's definitely where I like to spend my time because I can do a lot of different things and I feel very stable. And I talked a lot, a lot with the kids and coaching, like your shoulders have to be stable, your hips have to be stable, and you need to come in in a position that you can, you know, you work out of because um, a lot of people drop chop their arms on this stuff. So, so I do, I lift three times a week and uh, we do Olympic lifts um, and um, more for auxiliaries. And Tom likes doing like bodybuilding auxiliary stuff, which I think is good, but we also do a lot of um, specific strength, right? So specific strength. And, um, and when I say that, there's a lot of times we do core and you're like really kind of like right here doing like sit-ups. And I like doing core where you're like really elongated and your muscles have to be strong in a really stretched out position. That's why gymnastics is really good because usually if you're like hanging from a bar or you're in full like Superman position or something, you have to work out of it. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of, right now it's a lot of power. I'm sorry, strength. Like I'm trying to like do heavy med balls. Like I'm doing five by 20, like five kilo, seven kilo overhead forward 
which is a lot for the shoulder coming out of it. But I think that it's better than, you know, people, when they're coming back from injury, they do a lot of um, light ball throws. And you can get this with, you know, baseball players, obviously, mm -hmm. which is totally, you know, if you're, if you had a reconstruction, you need to do light stuff. But the sooner you can get to the heavier stuff, the, I think the better. And I'm testing my hypothesis as we speak. Obviously, we'll see how the year goes. But when I've talked to you, like Thomas Roller and Kesselrand, they both really encourage like heavier earlier because that develops. Because with a heavy ball, um, it stabilizes itself a little bit and you're just throwing with, obviously, it's strength. Where if you have a lighter implement, you throw, you, your arm speed can be really fast. Yeah. And on accident, obviously, because it's light. And that deceleration is what hurts me right now. Yeah. That's like, and because it's a lot of stability, that, and that's what I'm trying to gain back. It's mainly stability. The strength is, has come back in a good manner. So I think that throwing a lighter ball can lead to, you know, more fatigue in a weird way, like fatigue in the, the smaller muscles where like when you have like more strength based, like the bigger muscles take over mm -hmm. and it's kind of working a little bit more. So yeah, I, I hit the weight room hard, especially when I'm feeling good. Um, but if I'm not, it's okay. Cause I'll do a lot of like body weight kind of core and flexibility stuff in the gymnastics room. Um, throwing, I try to throw really clean and not worry about like crazy intensity because, um, I'm just trying to be more patient with the progression of the season. And I like doing a lot of stadiums, um, kind of low impact jumping work. I mean, we do like, we measure, um, standing broad jump and standing triple and stuff, but I don't like measuring all the time. That's uh, one thing Tom likes measuring because that's old school. It's kind of like, you know, um, looking at lists and stuff, but I would much rather do like more technical jumping and kind of quick contacts and like a little bit, um, more basic jumping stuff. You need, you need the high end stuff as well, but like, I, I'd rather just train, um, seven days a week than train two days and be fried for the next two days and then get two days. And you know what I mean? Like I try to have a really balanced training approach. Yeah. You got to brush your teeth once a day, you know? Yeah, exactly. Although a secret though, I don't like brushing my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> cavity free since 94. So I guess I'm doing all right. Yeah. I've never had a cavity either. There you go. And I used to play the drums. I think we're more similar than you think. Eva. <laughs> ah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, I was going to say, oh yeah, dude, toothpaste is a big conspiracy though, you know? The fluoride. <laughs> yeah. The fluoride, yeah, dude. The fluoride's not that. good for you. Dude, my friend my friend made a joke one time to me, I'll never forget it. He was like, man, ever since I stopped brushing my teeth, I've lost so much weight, like I'm saving so many calories off the toothpaste. <laughs> how many how many calories in toothpaste? Uh, probably like two. I don't even know. <laughs> you don't even really consume it either, so. <laughs> Are you guys on swallow your toothpaste? <laughs> but, yeah, no, man. Okay. I, hope, I hope that answered, and so if we're talking, so I hope that answered for how I kind of train. Yeah, um, sure. But if we're talking baseball and what, I don't know, like I said, I'm, I'm not the, I don't know too much about how high level baseball guys train. I mean, I see videos. It seems like they do a lot of rotational stuff, which is great. I like rotational abs mm. a lot, obviously. Strong obliques are really important. Um, and that's how you connect. You know, if you have good legs and you have good upper body and you have a weak core, then you're not going to be able to connect it. So you mm. need to have that midsection to be really strong. Um, so baseball, like, I feel like I can't, I don't know exactly how they progress, like throwing and, and progression um, for, I guess, speed. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know a ton. I, I know the, the baseball guys at the uh, Kentucky has a really good program. They got a whole new facility when we were there, and they they went pretty far. And um, and even the pit team, I think, was pretty good when I was there. And those guys are always pretty fit, and they look strong. So seems like they knew what they were doing. It's <laughs> good. Need to see more. I mean, give me. I guess give me a, like a more direct question. Maybe I can answer it, but. Um, or like a, or what do you guys see and like kind of elaborate on it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to, to piggyback off what you were saying about the light balls, like I, I hundred percent agree. Cause I know that this winter when I did my content tour and I was going, I visited a couple different baseball facilities and I was doing pull downs all the time. My rotator cuff, like the, um, the back of the rotator cuff, like where, you know, you have the decelerators and that's never sore with me when I do ball throws and, and javelin throws. And like that was lit up after I was throwing the ball throw, um, the baseballs. So you could see how just the faster, uh, the faster, lighter implement really like put a stress on my arm. Um, and that's kind of where I was at with Nevin last year too, where he had a partially torn rotator cuff and labrum and, um, he took some time off throwing and we, I helped him recover without surgery. Um, and we did a lot of like overloaded dumbbell eccentric movements and just a lot of like heavier ball throws kind of like build up the tolerance, but like low intensity, like very high volume. Um, I guess more of like in terms of like you know, like uh, weightlifting and, and training and stuff like that. Cause you know, I've seen a lot of like baseball players in my, um, I mean, upward, my baseball group is fine. Cause I have them run Jack to Javelin, but um, with, uh, with a lot of the kids that we see at school, you know, like they're, they're just in the weight room, like almost going through the motions and, and not really like pushing. So themselves you say that much. baseball players don't lift as much as they should. Well, it's definitely not as big of a focus and a lot, a lot of baseball players too. Like they're very big on um, playing the sport, you know, which is good, but they play, 
baseball in the spring, baseball in the summer, like fall ball, you know, and then over the winter, they might focus on it a little bit, but it might be only for like two or three months. Um, and they're still doing like, you know, they're pitching and hitting lessons and yeah. stuff. I would say two things. Um, one, if you take a look at golf, the PGA in the last seven years, I mean, golf is a great example. The golfers back in the day, out of weight, you know, smoking cigs, whatever, John Daly type ask, and crush the ball. But then all of a sudden, like Tiger comes around, Bryson DeChambeau, and people start taking a fitness. You see this in disc golf as well. I'm a big disc golf player, and I've played all across the country and stuff, and I love it. And you see the athletes are taking their fitness a lot more serious, and there's you know different outlets for it. But golf and disc golf, both, like the, the athlete has changed over the past year, and people are they're hitting the ball farther, they're throwing the ball farther on average, and it's the technique is a lot of the similar, but you know they're producing way more. So. And then also like distance runners. The distance runners are in the weight room, and uh, from the schools that I've been, and you're like, why do why do distance runners get in there? They don't want to bulk up. And um, I always like, and this is a good approach too. Like the weight room, I look at it as bulletproofing your body, and that's how gymnastics is too. Like you're just bulletproofing. You're preventing injuries, not 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 increasing your chances. Like if you get hurt in the weight room, then shame on you. I mean, stuff happens, but like when you're doing a specific sport, like you need to be very, you need to know your goals. So when you go into the weight room, like I said, the distance runners like they're doing stuff for shoulders at their so they can be stable their core so they can be stable so their running form doesn't break down at mile 20 if they're doing a marathon and having the mindset of like okay i'm lifting very specific because i want my body to hold up in training hold up on the field and obviously then that's kind of how you can work you don't see like um massive increases in body weight or massive increases in in strength but it's a little bit more long-term development and you're just like you said keeping staying on top of your body and keeping it strong and preventing injuries yeah. Yeah. I like that approach too. you kind of like the minimum effective dose almost where like you're doing, you know, what you need to build your strength and, and prevent your body from injury and prepare your body for the sport, but you're not necessarily pushing it so hard that it becomes like the sole focus. And I think that's a big thing too, that I've been trying to, to preach as well to a lot of the kids that I message like privately or coach. I'm just like, you know, you put in that initial deposit into your body composition, into your muscle mass, into your strength. Like it's relatively easy to maintain just like obviously getting there uh, requires a lot of work, but kind of like, you know, once you get to that level of strength, like you're able to dial it back a little bit, maintain it pretty easily and put more of a focus on, on more of the stuff that actually matters. Um, yeah. I mean, I want, I've been saying this for years, but the 1% better every day. And I have, was training a kid, um, two weeks ago, just started training him in javelin through a little bit last year and worked with Mike Shuey. And, uh, he was like, can we do a, like, he's like, when I trained with Mike, we did three hours. And I was like, all right, well, we're not doing that <laughs> first off. And, um, and I was like, if you have a distance runner and they have to run hundred miles a week, like they're not going to do two 50 mile days and then rest the rest of the week. They're going to break it up and do a little bit every day and get to your goal by the end of the week. Like if you, if you want to hit the gym like four times a week, like you can't be doing it all in one day is not going to just, you know, get the job done all the same. Yeah. Spreading it out. That's how you, that's how you should look at it and that's how you should execute. So, you know, just to being consistent every day, um, allows you to, you know, and then you, you know, attack it when you're available. But, um, and I think that's really important. And so when people like are having a difficult time, I'm a big proponent of and encourager of people competing after college in whatever they do, because, you know, it's just different. You're in college, you have class, you probably have a scholarship. There's a lot of pressure and you have all the influences of friends. But you know, afterwards, you kind of you can tailor it towards you. And, and people don't think that like, I don't have 20 hours to um, to give to training each week. And I was like, whoever said you needed 20 hours, you know, depending on what your goals are, like that's not that's not necessarily required. And. I always say like you don't have to you don't have to do the most, but you have to do something. Mm. So when you get in the weight room, you don't have to do the most. You don't have to lift the most, but you have to be in there and you have to be doing it. And um, so if you're out there and you're you know not you haven't been training, just you don't have to go in there and, and kind of get back to wherever you were when you like were at your best shape. Or if it's your first time, like you don't have to compare yourself. You don't have to do the most. You just have to do something. You have to be there, and then you build on that. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. What do you guys have? So javelin, I want to hear about the javelin baseball. Like, what do you guys promote then as far as like training from javelin into baseball? Yeah, but like a lot of our baseball guys don't, I, I feel like they don't prepare their body enough to actually produce the amount of force that they actually want to see on the mound. So they don't give themselves that bulletproof mentality or like they try to baby their arm a little bit or they're more technical in a sense of they just focus on their technique and do a bunch of dry reps with the towel and they feel a lot of different things, but they throw 70 miles an hour. So I was trying to tell him, like, you guys want to throw 90 or you want to throw mid upper 80s, but you're trying to feel stuff when you throw 70. It's going to feel completely different, like, when you put on size and you put on speed and power. So I just like what the javelin world approaches, where you guys do have longer off-seasons, where you do have 
times where you dedicate strictly to like strength and hypertrophy and power and technique all blended into one so you're not competing all the time and it's tough for a lot of baseball players because they do play a lot the volume of their competition is just way higher where they like pitch like all through fall and they have like a game every weekend and then they go into the winter where they may have like a 12-week off season where they're still throwing in the mounds inside and then they go out to the spring season and they go straight to summer ball and it's a lot of like maintaining so i've been telling a lot of kids that like want to like actually improve their velocity and like speed is to just take the fall off like to give them a longer training a training window just because their just bodies aren't capable of producing the force required and i think javelin just has like a lot of stuff like the gymnastics rings like creating the the separate hip shoulder separation the core strength and stability the shoulder strength and stability i just think a lot of that is missing in like since their time window of training is just so little i agree with that um, I would always like football. They play once a week, Jack javelin track and field. It's usually once a week, if not once every two weeks. So we have like baseball and basketball that play back to back where they have every other night and they're traveling a lot. I would love to talk to a strength coach and talk about their in season programming and how they do that. Cause yeah, you're on the road a lot and you're competing every other day. So where does conditioning, where does, where do your workouts come into play? Because you have to maintain a certain level. And at the end of the year, I think that time off is really important. Like, Active rest, obviously, you're still doing stuff, especially if you have an active uh, lifestyle. But taking a long time where you don't pick up the jab and you work on all those basics again and just strength development, um, it just is a no-brainer to me. Your arm, like, can only, I mean, your arm needs to be in its best shape for five months. Like, you don't need to be hammering away. You need to let it rest. And the other thing I would say is you see with, I mean, it's funny because my, my coach, my freshman year, he would never let us compete three times in a row. And I remember him pulling up T first, and he's like, this guy competed three times in a row. He said, good mark, good mark, third beat, down. And he goes to the next one, he's like, good, good, down. And like, he's like, everybody goes down in the third beat in a row. It's inevitable. And um, I don't know if that's completely true, but it was it stuck with me. And I was like, that's yeah, some, I want to compete three in a row. That's some bro science I'm willing to buy into, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Because I'm right there. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, good down. <laughs> yeah, every time. No, nah, but I, I, I could see that as well. Because, like, I mean, even with Jordan, like, I have him compete. I think three regular season meets a year up until this point, and then he's got three postseason, and then we did two over the summer last year. This year, I think we're going to do two regular season, and then three postseason, and then try to get him to some uh, bigger meets like over the summer, like you know, getting ready for the Olympic trials and, and whatnot. But like, um, and yeah, I just see that like, yeah, the um, the overall volume. It's like the more that people compete, a lot of times they just like start dropping off. And I think you and I even talked about that one time too, where we were saying how there's a lot of people that they just open up really big because like they're strong and healthy at the beginning of the year. And then as the season goes on, they, they, they tank down. And that's a big flaw with like the division two and division three national ranking system is that, you know, you could throw a bomb the first meet of the year and then, you know, like really have wear and tear on your back and your elbow and your hip or your shoulder. And then by the time, you know, your conference and regional meet comes around, you're throwing like five to seven meters shorter, but you still qualify for nationals because they just take the top 20 marks rather than having like a regional meet that, um, that brings the best into the into the national championship. Yeah. Yeah, the other side of it is like, I mean, you can go week to week in season, but if you go on a larger scope, and I've talked to people about this, and you can kind of look like people go like good year, good year, and then they have a real they struggle that next year, that third year, and you see people drop off year to year, and you don't really understand why. And I think people underestimate how much time your muscles need to recoup and the joints and the, like, I mean, you hear that your body regenerates cells like every seven years right? And become a new person. Um, so like blood cells and like the way your muscles are made up, like it takes a long time for that stuff to regenerate. Like a month is not long enough, you know? Yeah. So when you're hammering for eight, nine months out of the year, like, you know, four months or a little bit, even longer, like the longer you can give your body to kind of like rest and recoup those cells, like that is really important. And so when you have a super long competition season, then you only take off like, a, like your body's going to feel good in a month or two because like on the surface level, but I think deep down, like deep into your muscles and like the way that, you know, the fatigue that's that you've put on for a year or maybe two years of really hard training is like substantial. And we, like you see that a little bit in COVID too. A lot of people, we, we experienced it because we trained right through the season and we trained through the summer. And then all of a sudden it's like fall again. You kind of train and people were fatigued because you can't train for 12 months in a row and like expect to be like, I mean, you can peak at times and do stuff, but like it's not very sustainable. So I think that yeah. people underestimate how much time you should rest at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, like Curtis, he competes like a ton during the year. And I was like, you need to take a lot of time off. He's like, my body feels good. I'm going to get back. And he's more of like a machine when it comes to this. Like his body's just very durable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, kudos to him because mine's not like that. Yeah. Um, That's but I'm worried I'm- because like it's just years of, of, of taxing and taxing with like small breaks and small breaks. And then all of a sudden it's got to come. It's got to come to a head at some point. Yeah. Better. 
yeah. rolled there. Like there's like when Better trained, he trained so hard and he had such a good season, but then there's like this huge drop off, and it's like why? Yeah, you know, he why competed like 15 times a year, like a lot, you know, during, during his for best two years. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean by that too, though, because I I saw that in myself where I like obviously I dealt with a lot of elbow issues and stuff, but. I put a lot of like, you know, four, five hours a day, like into the gym and mobility and med balls and stuff and kind of just doing, trying to do everything like high intensity all the time and just almost putting like too much time and energy into some of the stuff that doesn't matter as much. But then now that I am trying to compete like post collegiately and have, you know, looking at long term, like, all right, how do I, how do I approach like 25 to 30 years old? It's making me realize like, all right, well, what am I going to do to fit this training session in, in like an hour and a half instead of four hours? And it makes me much more intentional about my training sessions, but I could also, I feel like I could train seven days a week right now. Whereas in college, I felt like by that Friday or Saturday, I needed like a day or two off to like recover or like I couldn't throw, you know, the day after I did like upper body or legs. Cause like my chest was so sore, like my legs were so sore. I couldn't move stuff like that. Whereas now it's just like my weightlifting volume is just much lower. So I'm able to like get more, more like high quality reps in and stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. You definitely need um, those active rest days, like doing just a little bit every day, even if you can't train, you know, can't train fully. It's pretty important. Um, Brett, have you ever thrown the javelin? I've never thrown the javelin. Never. What's going on? What kind of podcast? Only, only baseball. We got to bridge the gap here, dude. We got to keep it out there. I'll I'll go with Dan. When it's a little warmer, I'll go to the track near your house. I know. We got to teach me. That would be a crazy YouTube video. So are you um, training for, are you still training baseball or are you just coaching or where are you at? How are you? I'm 24. So I was, I played collegiate baseball for two years and COVID happened. And then that whole season, my junior year kind of got washed. So I ended up quitting baseball just to pursue powerlifting and then really got into exercise science and coaching. And so since then, I've just been coaching full time, uh, do some adult gen pop in the morning and deal with, uh, in the baseball facility I'm at now, we are primarily like 90% of our athletes are baseball players and softball players. So like, I'm always going to be around the baseball world, but haven't competed in, a cle- any type of baseball like I've swung off the tee a couple of times and threw a little bit but no church league softball no <laughs> no church league softball we um the hours have been kind of nuts like for coaching like it's it's been like a 5 a.m to 9 p.m kind of grind of like trying to get everyone in like either it's personal training or the small group so yeah. I I just try to find time to train myself and then I experiment with all the exercise science stuff that I read and watch and then apply it to myself and see like over the summer I was never really fast or could jump high that was ne- like that was never my thing and then these past two summers I made it my goal to jump over 35 on the jump mat. Ended up getting 36, which was cool. And then, um, nice. and then just sprint like as fast as I could. I got up to like 21.7 miles per hour, which is like I never thought I would be able to do that. Yeah. And um, my my big goal is to dunk a basketball. Like being a five nine white guy, I think being able to dunk would be kind of cool. But um, oh, very very cool. Yeah. So like that's just like I I've, I've always enjoyed training more than the actual sport. Like I thought like I was I kind of fell out of love with baseball, but I always did it because that's all I knew. But I love the weight room way more than I love like doing those practices and catching bullpens. So I just did as much as I could exercise science wise to help the baseball players that actually still love baseball in the game and how I can help them just physically get better for the sport that they're like. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you should definitely play some church league though, hitting dingers. You know, I mean, that's they ban they like out. they start calling them outs after you hit like five home runs. I think. Like still dinger. <laughs> it's still an out. <laughs> it's yeah, they, true. They, I mean, for the major for the major league softball, I know they're like. It's like ah, oh, bases loaded. You now they used up all their home runs. So yeah, I mean that's there's some strategy. I don't mind that, but not most. Most I guess uh, the church league I played in. There's no cap. You know, you just hit them. Yeah, absolute bombs every single time. Yeah, I want to get I want to get back in the swing. Pop up or home run, dude. Yeah, like, I want to I want to start testing out some like exit velos because I never really got. I got like 93, I think, off the tee, like 95 off of um, like a live pitch, but I never saw the hundred mark. And I thought like that would be like a cool metric to try to hit, just to say that I could yeah. do it. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't be able to hit like some of these pitches that we have in like uh, we had like a Stanford he was rookie of the year at Stanford and he comes in to train in the offseason and I'm like dude I wouldn't even be able to see the ball come out of your hand like he's throwing 95 effortlessly dude 6'8 like 250 yeah. like he's a big ass man child like I'm not stepping in the box against you like I'll, I'll get the machine out or something yeah yeah I think that uh, I think we have a new YouTube video idea we gotta teach Brad how to throw the javelin I mean if Anna could do it yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't know I mean, it just seems like it's the next step we gotta, we gotta start training and start implementing dude and I think that that would be a great that would be a great uh, you know selling point and it's yeah. like yeah dude road, road to 80 meters road to 80 meters we gotta test we gotta test uh, jab throw pull down and exit velo and see who could who's the best out of the, the two of us out of the two I gotta start throwing then <laughs> I'm throwing a little bit yeah start throwing a little bit and then dude just jump into competition man it's fun get the competition flowing yeah 
Definitely. <laughs> I, was, I was always more comfortable with the weight room. That's why I competed in powerlifting, but yeah, definitely yeah, get that's the ball yeah, that's, a little bit. I mean, yeah, Chris, Chris is a powerlifter too. He's, he's a strong dude. He's, he's maxing some of the Olympics today. He's strong. He just hit, he hit 600 in squat in the, the yeah. fall. That's crazy. Strong dude. It's, he's it's, like 5'8 as well. 5'8. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's, a a short, it's a short stubby guy that can squat a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Ethan, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure, guys. It was my pleasure. <laughs>